0: You. okay well it's good to be back if you have your bible go ahead and open up to john chapter 13 and it's good to be back both in person uh, i've been on vacation for the last two weeks but it's also good to be back in the gospel of john because we took a break and did a few um, small series to address some different things in between uh, we've already done the first 12 chapters and now we're in going to be doing the next the second half of uh, starting now. So we're going to be in John chapter 13. So while I was on vacation, we, I had the opportunity to go to a few different things that were uh, enjoyable. But if you told me about them just in writing, some of those would seem a little bit strange because I went to a place that was full of some of the most dangerous things that humans face. Things that had the capacity to eat me. Things that had the capacity to step on me and crush me. Things that could circle me and entwine me and kill me. I went to the zoo. But if you just know things about the animals, if, you, if someone said, hey, we're going to go to a place that has gotten all of these dangerous things and put them all within a couple of acres and we're going to go there and you've never heard of a zoo, you're going to be like, absolutely not. I'm not going there. One of the rooms in specific was the reptile room. Now, there are three things in life that I don't like. I don't like small snakes, I don't like big snakes, and I don't like sticks that look like snakes. I hate those things. And so this whole room just full of reptiles, if I know about those things, there's no way I'm going there except that I knew something about zoos. That they do a really good job of keeping you separated from that other thing that can eat you. It's kind of really important for their business model. And knowing that, it impacted what I did, because I knew I would be safe. I knew that I could take my six-month-old daughter, and nothing was going to come eat her. I was like, all right, let's do this. And I greatly enjoyed it. I could see something similar to that with my kids. We were um, at my aunt and uncle's house, and they live on Lake Lanier, which is the biggest lake in Georgia. It's a reservoir, but because it's a reservoir in between the mountains, it's incredibly deep. So right off the dock, you're already at 20 plus feet um, depth. And so My kids are still learning how to swim, and so the rule was they had to always wear the life jacket. But still, when you're looking at the water and you can't see the bottom of it, that's like my wife's greatest fear. And so watching the kids kind of start interacting with the water, and they have the life jacket. Now, if you read a life jacket and it said 50% effective, you may float. You might not. We don't know. Find out. You have a 50-50% chance. There's no way they're getting in the water. Now, we know that it's effective, and yet at the same time, watching my kids go through that progression—not Jack. Jack Jack did his own thing right from the beginning. If he did or didn't have a life jacket, it didn't matter. He was going to do his own thing and jump in the water face first from whatever. But Elena and Judah, both a little bit apprehensive. Elena— watching her grow in confidence and knowing the security of what she was wearing to the point where then she was willing to jump off the dock. Judas, uh, who, who is two, months, uh, two years old, at first swimming like just death grip on you as you're going through the water to the end, just swimming and like, okay, wait, where's Judah? Well, there he goes. He's going in the water again and just watching. They got to the point where what they knew impacted What they did. Today, in our message, our passage, Jesus wants his disciples to know something. And in knowing that thing, he wants it to impact what they do. And the thing he wants them to know is that he loves them, he wants them to be secure in the knowledge of his love for them. Now, you might be listening to this, or if I was hearing this message, I'd be like, wait, really? That's what we're going to spend time talking about? Just Jesus loves? I mean, I'm good on that topic. I know that thing. I mean, if there's one verse, if there's verses that I've memorized, God so loved the world, I got that one. Songs that we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, I've got that one. The songs that we sing, the things that we talk about, hey, God is love, bumper stickers. If there's one thing I know about the Christian faith, I'm good on that one. But let's ask the question, are we really secure in the knowledge of Christ's love? Because what we know is supposed to impact what we do. Are we so secure in the knowledge of Christ's love that it is impacting everything that we do? I know for myself that that's not the case. If I evaluate myself, I know there are things about the the love of Christ that I am not embracing and receiving. Let, Let me just ask a few questions to see if maybe you struggle with the same disconnect that I do of knowing this and letting it impact you. Are you secure in the knowledge of Christ's love for you? Are you so secure in the knowledge of Christ's love that you never doubt it? So secure that when faced with difficult and agonizing circumstances, you never question or doubt the love of Christ. So secure that you turn to Christ for every need and not just the big or spiritual stuff, knowing that he loves you and will help you. So secure that there is never a day that the reality that the almighty God loves you doesn't overwhelm you. Are you so secure... In the knowledge of Christ's love that when sin stains your soul, you run directly to him and not from him. So secure that when the muck and mire of sin burdens your back, you turn to the one who saved you and cry out, sanctify me. Are you so secure in the knowledge of Christ's love that you don't hide your sin from him, you expose it knowing that he can help you? So secure in the knowledge of Christ's love that you count it a blessing and not a burden when the opportunity comes to sacrificially serve others like Christ served you. Are you, are we, secure in the knowledge of Christ's love like that? If we aren't, then this is the passage for us. Our big idea this morning is that when we receive the love of Christ, we are motivated to live like Christ. Christ. When we receive the love of Christ we are motivated to live like Christ. So right now just as because it's been about 12 weeks since we've been in John we need to understand that right now we're having a shift in the book. What we've seen so far is that Christ has had a very public ministry in the world. He's had about three years in which he has publicly professed who he is. He has called people to respond to him. He has called them to believe. He's done signs. He's demonstrated his love. Most of the book in the first 12 chapters encompass the majority of Christ's ministry. We've already seen about three years. But here's the shift. Instead of now having a public ministry, Jesus now has much more of a private ministry. The next several chapters are going to be Jesus having a dialogue with his disciples. He's going to be conversing with his own, the ones who belong to him. The other shift is that now we are, the the Apostle John is zooming in, and the next several chapters only encompass a few days. We're zooming into this moment. We finished chapter 12 talking about now is the hour. The time has Come. So what does John, how does Jesus, what does he do in introducing this next section that is so important for his disciples? Now this private time, this one-on-one time, he begins by assuring them of his love. In our first section, we have a demonstration of Christ's love, and in this section, we're going to first have a statement, then an action. So let's read the statement, John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, this isn't a statement or quote from Jesus. This is something that John, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is writing. It's the words of the narrator, which add a significance to this because John knows what's going to happen. John was there when this story happens and he's writing, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. This is the assurance of Christ's complete uh, complete love. These words serve as an introduction not only to this moment when Jesus is going to wash their feet, it serves as an introduction for everything we're going to see. Christ is going to love them to the end. He's not running this race and then getting to the finish line and just saying, you know what, I think I'm done. We've had a good go of this. We've, we've had some great moments. You, you remember when we fed the 5,000? That was great. I think we can stop here. No, he goes, and he continues, even to the point of dying on the cross. The setting is so important, and we're going to talk about that more, but notice how it starts before the Passover. The the Passover has been a theme throughout the Gospel of John. John shares about more Passovers than any other of the Gospel writers because it's part of the theme that he's developing. If you remember back in chapter 1, we remember the words of John the Baptist, so not John the author, but John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of this is developing that this is the sacrificial lamb. Christ is the one who is going to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. So we have this foreshadowing here. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. This is a tense moment. If you remember the end of chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, uh, the, the, the Greeks come to Jesus and he says, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the moment. This is what all of human history has been leading towards. So Jesus knows what is about to happen and that impacts what he does. Knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Everything Christ did on this earth was a demonstration of his love. One of the things, the theological truths that we know about God is that God is love. And in his perfect and complete um, use of those attributes, that means that everything that God does is included in him being love. All of the things that he's done, everything in his ministry till now, all of it is part of love. We've seen that. The very fact that Christ is in the world is an incredible display. But I love the next part where it says, he loved them to the end. To the end is not um, just something like where we think about time. Oh, he loved them to the end. We reach the end of a story and that's it. No, to the end, what it means is completion. He loved them to the end. He loved them to completion. The task of love was finished. In fact, the word there to the end is, is a similar root to when he's on the cross and he says, it is finished. He loved them to the end. This is a beautiful statement that should give us great security. Jesus doesn't love us just in the big stuff. Jesus doesn't just love us in the past. Christ's love is complete. It is never changing. It is always present, but he, and he demonstrates that by what he does. Look at the action of Christ's complete love in verses two through five. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, and again, notice the word, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The wonderful thing about our relationship with Christ is that Christ does not love us in mere words. Christ doesn't just, we don't know about the love of Christ just because he wrote about it in a book. We know the love of Christ because of what he did. He demonstrates that love. So so the question is, why now? Doesn't Jesus have enough going on? Doesn't he have enough on his mind? Humanly speaking, isn't this the moment where we can just give Jesus some space? It's the greatest moment of all human history. Everything has been leading up to this moment. It's a heavy moment. And yet Jesus still takes the time to demonstrate his love. Why does he do that? Because they need it. One of the main ways we know the love of Christ is in how he cares for our needs. The reason he demonstrates his love to them is because he knows they need to have it confirmed. Think about what's about to happen. They've just spent all this time learning about Jesus and what's about to happen. The disciples are going to deny him. They're going to run away from him. Jesus is going to die and depart. All of these things in that moment, they're going to question, wait, did something go wrong? Did he abandon us? Does he still love us? We ask those questions. When things aren't going the way we think they should, when we're not feeling the proximity and and closeness of relationship with Christ, how often do we question, wait, does he still love me? So even though this is a huge moment, Christ takes the time to demonstrate his love. It's hard for us to comprehend the magnitude of this moment. I think that often we read this and we're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's a nice moment. Jesus washes their feet. Oh, that's cool. I've seen that at a wedding. I was at a youth retreat. The youth pastor did it once. Cool. It's, it's, it's a normal thing. It's not. We, we, for us to understand and comprehend the magnitude of the moment, we, we have to consider a few things. And honestly, we could spend way more time just on this section, but here's just a few things. First, we need to understand the culture. What exactly is happening? You need to understand this wasn't done. This was an extremely humble and even shameful job. There were a number of people in society who would not even consider doing this because it was so beneath their station. We get glimpses of that even in the Gospel of John. There's clues in the Gospel of John. Again, thinking of what John the Baptist says earlier, what does he say about Jesus? I am unworthy of... To untie his sandal. John puts himself way down. He's like, look, I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. Earlier we saw the story of Mary and she washes Jesus' feet. There's an idea here that, that John has been developing here that feet are something that that it's beneath you, pun intended. Yeah, happy Father's Day. <laughs> Who washed feet? The lowest of low. Who is Jesus? The highest of high. To think of this, the, 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 the dichotomy between these things, it, it's, it's insane. And yet that's what Christ did. He is the highest of high, and yet he washed their feet. We also need to comprehend the, the, the chronology. When is this happening? First it says, during supper. He did it in the middle of supper. He rose from supper. He's calling attention to what he's doing. He wants the disciples to take notice of what he's about to do. But beyond that, it's in the midst of his final hour. How often throughout the book of John have we seen my time has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Over and over, this is not the time. And yet now he's finally said, this is the time. This is the big moment, not just of Christ's ministry, not just of his life, but of all human history. This isn't a light moment. Jesus wasn't thinking, you know what would be fun? I could wash all your feet. We could have pedicures. There's nothing else going on. We've got nothing to do right now. Come on, this could be fun. A guy moment. Not a guy moment. Not something that's going to catch on. No. Jesus picks this incredibly heavy moment. When we think of the emotion that's coming from the, in the garden of Gethsemane, When we think in verse 21 where Jesus is troubled in his spirit, that's still happening right now. This is the butterflies before the big moment that you know something huge is going to happen and yet Christ washed their feet. If you ever wonder... If Jesus only cares about the great and spectacular and not the menial and personal, just remember that on the night of his betrayal, Christ set aside time to wash the dirty feet of the ones he loved. Before being stripped of his robes and hung in shame on a cross for our behalf, he stripped his robes and did what was considered shameful as he washed their feet. Before bearing the muck and mire of the sins of this world, as he paid our cost, he washed the muck and mire from the feet of his disciples. That's when he chose to do this act, in his hardest moment. He decided that was the time to demonstrate his love. We also see the magnitude, not just in the culture or the chronology, but also in the characters. Who are the characters of this story. Well, first we have the character of who is washing the feet. It is the almighty God. This is the God of the universe. This is the great I am. Think of this. The very one who formed the dust of earth into humanity took on the dust of earth by becoming part of humanity, and if that wasn't enough, then knelt down before the ones he formed and washed the dust of earth from their feet. that wasn't enough, then it's also of whose feet he's washing. Not only did Jesus know who these people are, think of John as he's writing this and he's thinking back about what's going to happen. John, who was one of the three that Jesus said, will you just stay with me? Will you stay with me as I pray in this moment? And they fell asleep. And now John, thinking back, wait, just a few hours before Jesus took the time to wash my feet. He loved me to the end. Thomas, who is going to doubt, who's going to deny, he washed his feet. Peter, who three times is going to deny Christ, and in fact, in the next uh, paragraph we're going to see, in fact, refuses and rejects what Christ is doing, Christ washed his feet. And what is emphasized multiple times in this passage, even the feet of Judas. The one who betrayed him. Jesus knows what these people are going to do. He addresses the things that they're going to do even during this supper. He knows what's going to happen. And yet he washed their feet. Christ's love is not just this separate thing, this theological truth. It is a practical and personal truth that he loves us in all things whether it is the great and wonderful act of being crucified on the cross, or whether it's kneeling down and washing the mud from our feet. What does this mean for us? It means that we should rest secure in the knowledge of Christ's love. If you belong to Christ, his love for you is perfect. Christ loves his own to the end. It is unwavering. It is steadfast. Rest secure in that knowledge. This is what Christ wants his disciples to know. He loves them, and knowing he loves them should impact what they do. But there's a problem. Is what we do really in line with what we know? Do I consistently live like Christ, live like Christ as one who has received the love of Christ? Why don't I? Is the problem with Christ's love? Maybe he skipped me when he was washing everyone's feet. Maybe he didn't get to me. Maybe I really, he never really showed that kind of love to me. Is that the problem? No. No, I have received just as much love. So the problem then is not in the love that's being shown. The problem is that it's the love that's not being received by me. What then would cause us to not receive his love? The problem is that we often deter Christ's love. Rather than openly receiving his love, we place barriers and restrictions in the way that keep his love from us, and therefore, because we don't receive it, we don't live it. Let's look at the deterrent of Christ's love in the next verses. In verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter has a natural question in verse 6. Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter understands culturally what's happening. Peter might even understand chronologically that something greater is happening because of what Christ has said. And so he's confused. Christ, Lord, God, Jesus, are you going to wash my feet do you ever have moments in, in life where you're like, God, what are you doing? I, I, don't, I don't get this. I don't understand what you're doing right now. That's okay. It's okay. The problem here is not Peter's question. Peter's that's an okay question. It's a realistic and natural question. I don't understand what you're doing. Are, are you going to wash my feet To question is natural and even acceptable, but make it an honest question and wait for Christ's answer. The problem is when we question from a place of pride and authority instead of a position of humility and submission. Ask the question, but not in a position that's doubting what Christ is doing. Ask the question and wait for the answer. So how does Jesus respond? Christ tells Peter to trust him and be patient. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter, I know this is hard for you to understand. You might even think this is wrong, but can you trust me? Trust me that I know what I'm doing. Trust me that the reason I'm doing this is because I love you. Trust me that someday you will understand this. But right now, be patient and understand. Be patient and trust even when you don't understand. Have you ever gotten that response from God? God, what are you doing? God, I don't, I don't understand this. this. This doesn't make sense to me. Trust me and be patient. It's going to make sense, just not yet. It's so hard to trust when we don't understand what's happening. But here's the thing. This is going to happen. God is going to do things you aren't going to understand. When that happens, cry out to God. Ask him what's happening. You can ask him because he loves you. But if he answers you and asks you for trust and patience, do that. Humbly submit to him knowing that there will never be a time that he does anything for you that is less than love. Nothing that Christ ever does for you will be less than loving. So when you question, don't question, God, do you still love me? You can question, God, what are you doing? But Christ, if you're you're not going to tell me, I'll trust you. I will rest secure in the knowledge of your love, and I will patiently and humbly submit to what you're doing. Is that how Peter responds? Is that how we respond? No, Peter's response to Christ's request of trust is actually refusal. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Why does Peter refuse? Honestly, I'm not sure. There can be many reasons. It might be, I'm I'm not worthy for this. Don't do this. It might be shame. Jesus, I don't want you near my feet. You you think of me as better than I am. I don't want you seeing what is despicable about me. No, Jesus, I don't want you doing this. I want to, to do this. Jesus, this is inappropriate. What would this communicate to other people? There can be many, many reasons of why we reject or refuse Christ's love, of why Peter is rejecting or refusing. But do you know what the root of all of those are? It's pride. Jesus, I I know a better way to do this. Your plan here, it's not the right plan, Jesus. I've got something better for us to do. So no, I'm not going to let you do your plan because your plan smells, pun intended. At first glance, pride might not seem like the reason, but it is. What is Peter saying? Your way is not the right way. Whose will is Peter following? His own. I know what needs to be done, and so I'm not going to let you do this. He thinks he knows what's best. What deters Peter from receiving Christ's love? It's pride. How often do we refuse the love of Christ that Christ wants to lavish on us because of pride? Because we don't understand, we we reject his offer. Why is it so important for us to understand Who are we that we would presume to tell God, listen, unless I understand exactly what is happening and why, we're not moving forward on this. Until you explain this to me, we're not moving forward. That's pride. Receiving Christ's love often means humbly submitting. It will often mean exposing that which we hate most about ourselves because we need Christ to wash it. And that's hard. But it's love from Christ. We need Christ's love. We need what he offers. And that is precisely what Christ tells Peter. Christ rebukes him and shows him the reality of his need. Jesus answered him If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter, you need this. What I'm doing is necessary. You can't do this without me. Now, let's be clear we're talking about more than just feet here. Jesus is not introducing a new doctrine here and a new requirement for salvation. When we get to heaven, the apostle Peter is not going to be waiting at the door and say, let me see your feet. Let me see your feet. Let me smell them. Have have your feet been washed? That's not here. Jesus is talking on another level. How often in Christ's ministry did we see that there was an earthly side to things, but then a deeper spiritual reality? That's what's happening here. Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. What is Jesus talking about? Unless I save you, you have no hope. Unless I make you holy and clean, you can't be with me. Our first song that we sang was all about you are holy, holy, holy. You are set apart. Peter, in your filth, in your muck and mire, you can't be with me. If I don't wash you, you can't wash yourself. This is the reality of all humanity. This is the stain of sin on our soul. Man is separated from God because of sin. And it is only through Christ, only when he washes us, that we can be made clean. So how does Peter respond? Unfortunately, Peter's pride continues, like how often our pride continues. Simon Peter said to him, "Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head." Now you might look at them and say, "Wait a second, how is this pride? No, Peter's, Peter's turned. He, he went from, "You will never wash my feet," to now he's saying, "Jesus, not just my feet, wash all of me." What's the problem? What did Jesus offer? Jesus offered to wash his feet. Jesus said, this is what you need. And what is Peter still saying? Okay, well, if that's what I need, I actually need a lot more than that. I I still have a better way of doing this. How often when when we are confronted with things, first we reject it, but then we come around, but then we overcorrect and we go beyond what Christ is doing. Christ has said, this is what you need. So Peter's like no at first and then he's like all right that is what i need but i actually still need more than that let me tell you what to do what is that it's pride what should peter be doing humbly submitting christ if that's what i need then do that you know what i need here's the reality christ always knows what is necessary And that is precisely what Christ offers. Christ does not offer more than we need. Christ never offers less than we need. Christ offers precisely what we need. Hannah, on my desk are the last five pages of my notes. Can you go get those for me? (laughs) And we'll keep going. (laughs) Because I just want, I'm like, wait, back to what? Oh, all right hey, we've already done well, so if you're thinking five notes is, is a little bit much, we're, we're actually doing pretty good. What does Christ respond to Peter? So Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Peter, I didn't offer to wash the rest of you because that's not what you need what you need thank you what you need is what i'm offering i'm offering you to have your feet washed who is the one that has bathed that this passage talks about it's the one who has been washed by the blood of jesus See, this is the problem that all humanity has. This is what he says, that if you have not been washed, then you have no part. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. What is the need that we have? The greatest demonstration of Christ's love for us is in the response to our greatest need for him. What we need is salvation. We need to be bathed in his blood We need the stain of sin on our souls to be removed, and that is what Christ does when we place our faith in him. He declares us righteous. We are washed by the blood. But does that mean that then we're done? Once you've had salvation, there's nothing left to do. In one sense, yes. In one sense, our salvation is complete. And yet in another sense, there is a journey now, the process of sanctification. That Christ's blood washes us for salvation, but it is also Christ's blood that washes us for sanctification. See, the problem that we have is that we have this this wrong understanding that we think, wait a second, I am saved by grace alone in Christ alone but I am sanctified by my works alone. I need to work harder in order to be sanctified. That's wrong. Both actions, both salvation and sanctification happen through Christ alone. You have no need to be washed because you have already bathed except your feet. When you are walking in the dirt of this world, you're going to get dirty. And that's not saying, well, it's not your fault. You're just walking in a place that's muddy. There's nothing you could do about it. No, why? How do we know that that's not the case? Because Jesus walked in this world and he never got dirty. But that's not our case. We're going to walk in this world even after we have been washed in his blood and we're going to get dirty and we're going to need our feet Washed. Here's the question Why do we run to Christ for salvation and then yet we run from Christ in moments of sanctification? We accept accept His love. He loved me so much that He died for me. He saw the worst of me and He paid for me. But then when sin is exposed in our lives, I'm like, I'm not showing that to Christ. No, let me take care of that myself. I don't want Jesus to know about that. Let me do this. I confront this all the time where I see the evil of my own heart and then I'm like, I don't want to talk to God about that. No, let, let me see what I can do about this first. What we're doing is that we believe in Christ, in salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, but we think sanctification happens through my works. It doesn't. Both of them happen through Christ alone. This is what Galatians 3 says. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If we started in the Spirit, is it now going to happen through our works? No, it's all through Christ. When sin stains your soul, run to Jesus. He is the only one who can wash us. Jesus loves us to the end. He loves us to completions. That's Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will bring it to the end. But again, you can't come to Christ and ask him to wash your feet if he hasn't first washed your soul. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. If you have not yet come to Christ, do so now. Let him clean all of you. Let him save you. If you have already come to Christ and have been made clean, come to Christ and let him wash your feet. Let him sanctify you. We must not deter Christ's love through our pride. Receive the love of Christ. Humbly submit to Christ. Let him do that. Let him wash that which is dirty. But here's the other application of that that is another area that we struggle with because not only do I struggle exposing the things that Christ already knows about, and yet I think, well, it's going to be different if I actually say it out loud. He already knows about it, He already paid for it. And yet, I still don't want to expose it. Take it to Christ. But there's the other side of that there's the body of Christ. Let the body of Christ wash your feet. This last, uh, while I was on vacation during the first week, I had to do that. I had to go both to Christ and say, Christ, this is these are my dirty feet. This is what I'm struggling with. This is the sin that has stained my soul. Help me. At the same time, I also reached out to a brother in this church and I said, this is the stain of sin on my soul. Help me. It's both sides. Let the body of Christ be the hands of Christ in washing you. That's going to require humble submission. But when we humbly accept that, then we are able to complete the demand of Christ's love. When we receive the love of Christ, we are motivated to live like Christ. This is the natural result of receiving Christ's love. If we know that Christ loves us and have received that love, then we ought to live like Christ and serve others. Look at what he says. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for, right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also too, also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. It doesn't just stop at knowing that Christ loves us. It then looks like us living like Christ. It looks like us serving like Christ. His argument is from the greater to lesser. If I, the greater, your teacher, your master, if I wash you, the lesser, what should you be doing for one another? Again, Jesus is talking more than just feet. What did Jesus do? He served in a way no one else was willing to serve. Jesus did this mid-supper. That means that no one earlier on did it. None of the disciples looked and said, oh wait, this is a need. You know what? This isn't appropriate for Christ to do. Let me do this. Let me be the servant. They didn't do that. Jesus was the one that did it. He did what no one else had done and he is the last person they would have expected to do that. Jesus demonstrated sacrificial love. He humbly and sacrificially served. Jesus didn't do it because it was convenient. He did it because he loved them. He did it because they had a need and he filled that need. What does that look like for us? What needs within our body has God revealed to us that we have turned our noses at because it's a smelly situation? What has God, what have we avoided because it's just too messy? What have we ignored because we don't want to interact with dirt? Did Jesus do those things? Did Jesus avoid the dust of earth? If he, our Lord and Savior, did it, who are we to turn from it? Jesus is our example. It says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. I want us to see something about the example of Christ. We've already noticed when he does this. We've seen who he does this. We've seen what, all of those things that we can understand that we always are to be serving. We don't have an excuse of like, look, I'm willing to serve, but not that guy. I'm willing to serve, but not at this moment. I'm willing to serve, but not by doing that. Jesus repels all of those things in what he does, but there's something else that we have. Look back at verse three. This is what it says. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, then he did those things. What do we see that? Because of what Jesus knew, it impacted what he did. So what did Jesus know? He knew what the Father had given. He knew who he was, and he knew where he was going. What the Father had given, who he was, where he was going— Can we know the same things? Can we know what the Father has given us? Can we know who we are? Can we know where we are going? John 1 verse 11 says this, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in that verse, what have we been given? The right to be called children of God. Who are we? The children of God. Where are we going to be with the Father? We know these things. What should that do? It should impact what we do. Here's the principle I want us to see. Christian service stems from security. Let me say that again. Christian service stems from security. The the way that you're going to be tempted to believe this, the way of the world, is that you serve out of insecurity. You're serving to earn something. You don't know if God loves you, so you want to be good enough that you can earn Christ's love. That's not how we serve. We serve from security. We serve from the security of knowing the love of Christ. When we know these things, it should impact what we are doing. When we receive the love of Christ, it motivates us to live like Christ. This is the difference between law and grace. We are children of grace. That's what motivates us to serve because of what we have received. We live like Christ when we serve one another. He says that this is what you should be doing for one another, but we also live and love like Christ when we serve others. And the next verse is, "As, as truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Again, if you know it, then do it. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. They're going to question, wait, what happened? What's going on with Judas? Like, what happened? What, What went wrong? And Jesus is saying, nothing went wrong. I knew about this. This links back to chapter 12 when we looked at why are there those who don't believe? Because that's part of God's sovereign plan. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What is Christ saying here? That you will be the instruments that demonstrate the love of Christ to others. We received love of Christ That he demonstrated to us, and if it is not deterred, then we demonstrate that love of Christ to others. So that then when they receive the love of Christ that is coming from us, they receive Christ. Here's the application that Christians are never to be reservoirs of Christ's love. We are called to be broken cisterns through which the torrent of Christ's love gushes forth. We might think, no, no, wait, I need to keep at least a little bit for myself just in case it runs out. You don't understand the love of God then. You don't hold back the love of God saying, well, let's just keep some here. Do you know what happens when you do that? It becomes stagnant, it doesn't replenish, it doesn't refresh. But when we are broken cisterns that allow the love of Christ to flow through us, it remains fresh. It allows others to see this love of Christ. Do what Jesus did and wash feet. If you find yourself unwilling, there's a good chance the problem is pride and that your feet still need washing. If you're turning away from the needs of those around you, then there's a good chance that you yourself have some washing that needs to be done. Do what Jesus did. So here's the thing that we need to do. We need to receive and be secure in the knowledge of the love of Christ. Friend, if you're here and you have not received the love of Christ yet, there is no greater demonstration of Christ's love than what he did on the cross when it says he loved them to the end or he loved them to completion, he did that by dying on the cross and raising, being, uh, rising again. On the cross, he said, it is finished. The price had been paid. Christ shows his love for us by seeing our need and providing the answer. Christ saw all of our needs when he died on the cross for us. If you have not yet received that love, if you have not repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that's where you need to start. But brothers and sisters, if you have done that, if you have received Christ's love, if you have been washed by his blood, are you secure in that knowledge? Are you so secure that you do not doubt or question his love? So secure that when sin stains your soul, you humbly run to him as the one who loves you more than any and the only one who can clean you. Are you so secure that you allow the body of Christ to love you and help you even with the parts that shame you? Are you so secure that you willingly and joyfully serve others because it's a privilege to live like our Savior? See, serving Christ, when we think of this, oh, this might be beneath us, we have the entirely wrong view. We need to have the view of John the Baptist. I'm not worthy to touch your feet. There is no service that is beneath you because all service is beyond you. We need Christ. The only way we can serve is through Christ but when we receive his love, it motivates us to live like him. What we know impacts what we do, and what we know is that Jesus loves us. When we receive the love of Christ, it motivates us to live like Christ.